Heavenly Father, there is something in which we all glory. It is the cross of Jesus Christ and on it Him crucified. Those of us whose eyes have been opened to see the glory of that cross and Him who hangs there, we celebrate today all of the greatness of the salvation that you have wrought in Christ. Our Father, it was, it was Job who wondered, how is it that a man could ever stand in your presence and be righteous? The answer, of course, is that none of us can. But there is a righteousness that has been provided by God in Christ that we can lay hold of. And so, Heavenly Father, with the hand and eye of faith, we lay hold of Christ and Him crucified. He is our sole hope of standing in your presence clothed in righteousness. His righteousness and His alone. Our Father, as we um, continue to advance into this new year, we do pray that uh, the decisions that we make this year will be more reflective of our love of you than perhaps the ones we made last year. Father, I pray for our, our nation, our new president, and I pray that resting upon him will indeed be the fear of God, upon him and his cabinet, and that decisions might be made there that would inch this nation back to a path of righteousness. Father, for those here who have loved ones who have physical illnesses, I pray that you will give comfort to the families and that you would restore health. Father, thank you for the wonderful ways that you have provided for Gracie Van, and it is through those generous people that you, you have prompted in their hearts that generosity that we continue to pay our bills and move forward. And I pray, Lord God, that you will uh, grant us evermore hearts, a people with hearts of great generosity. Father, bless each dime that's placed in these plates. Use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ in that only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Judges. And let's resume our study of the book of Judges. We've set that aside, of course, during the holidays. But now we resume our study of the book of Judges. And we do so uh, by entering it, Judges chapter 6. <clears throat> Let me read for you the first ten verses of Judges chapter 6. Follow as I read from that which is indeed the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of, because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass... When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, 
that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed my voice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Everybody likes stories about heroes. Everybody likes stories that, uh, that center in upon people who make a difference. And ladies and gentlemen, we are about to uh, enter into a story about a hero. His name is Gideon, of course. Uh, there is more said in the book of Judges about Gideon than any other person in, uh, that it speaks about. There are a hundred verses dedicated to Gideon. Um, whereas there's only 96 dedicated to Samson. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is have a mini-series within a series. That is, of course, the series has to do with the study of the book of Judges. But inside of that, we're going to have a mini-series on the, on the person of Gideon. And by the way, we'll have another one when we finally get to Samson. But this is going to be, the, for the next few weeks, <coughs> all about <coughs> this man that you know so much about, Gideon. And uh, very interestingly, ladies and gentlemen, I think you're going to find out that there's some things that you don't know about Gideon. We know certain things about his fleece. We know certain things about those pitchers and the, and the torches and the shouting and the, and, the, and the deliverance. But there are things about the rise and the, and the fall, the ebb and the flow of Gideon's experience that I think can be very beneficial for us. You watch him as, as he is strong in faith. And you watch him fail miserably, fail miserably in his walk with God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I think is so typical and true of so many of us. We have our moments. We have our moments where God in, in certain way, ways uses us. And it is a glory to behold and to watch. But then, then we flag in faith. We, we find ourselves... Wondering, who was that? I thought he was the man who did that. And now he has done this. It's a great opportunity, ladies and gentlemen, for us to get an insight into a man who indeed walked with God and yet did not do so. Did not do so perfectly. And you know, somehow I feel like the rest of us can relate to that. Let me um, begin with a word of caution. Um, I love heroes. I've got a few. I used to call them idols. And then somebody got on to me one Sunday and saying, you know, you shouldn't call them idols. And they're right. So now they're heroes. But be very careful about how you choose your heroes. If I were to stand here today and tell you that my heroes were Bill Gates and Donald Trump, you would know certain things about me, wouldn't you? You would know certain things that I value. 
Well, who are your heroes? Who are the kind of people that you want to emulate? Who are the men and women that set for you an example that you think is worth emulating? Who are they, ladies and gentlemen? Because once you figure out who your heroes are, we can tell a whole lot about the value system that's possessed in your soul. Be very careful about how you choose your heroes. But Gideon, Gideon is a interesting kind of hero, but very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, we're not even going to meet him until next week. What you get in the first 10 verses of the book of uh, Judges 6 is really a description of the times. That is, the times in which um, Gideon appeared, how bad things were. And of course, the oppressors of the moment were the Midianites. Between the close of um, chapter 5 and the opening of chapter 6, 40 years had transpired. And this sixth chapter opens with what has become a refrain. Uh, you know what a refrain is, don't you, ladies and gentlemen? If you're singing a song and you sing and it says, go to the refrain, that's the thing that you repeat uh, in between the stanzas. Well, chapter 6 opens up with what becomes in the book of Judges a refrain. Read it. Then the children of Israel did evil. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, don't ever insert words into the Bible because you'll always mess it up. But let me just insert these. They did evil once again in the sight of the Lord. Here we go all over again. And this time... God sins as the scourge, the nation of Midian. Seven years, which has reduced Israel to a dreadful poverty. Um, you'll see the description in the verses 1 through 6, where what happens is that every year at harvest time, this, this band of marauding Bedouins would sweep into Israel on camels. In, uh, in, in numbers that could not be numbered, they, as many as the locusts, the text says. They would sweep into Israel at harvest time and steal all the harvest. And leaving, as verse 4 says, no sustenance for Israel. This, uh, this enemy, Midian, being militarily more uh, stronger, would come in on camels and steal all of the harvest and leave Israel to starve. Now, in response to their enemies sweeping in um, harvest after harvest, and there was not only one harvest, ladies and gentlemen, there was a harvest in the spring, there was a harvest in the fall, and there was a harvest in the summer, and the Bedouins or the Midianites seemed to know when they were, and so they'd come again and again and again and leave Israel, even taking livestock along with them. And so these, these enemies of Israel ravaged this land of milk and honey, leaving Israel to starve. And after seven years of this, Israel is rather poor and tired and, and awfully hungry. And so in an effort to survive, Israel is driven underground. She begins to dig caves. She was made into a nation of moles. 
And so Israel sought to survive by doing everything under the cover of secrecy, everything in the dark, everything in caves, everything as they cowered and, and hid from their, idi- their, their enemies of Midian. Life was grim, gaunt. There was no gaiety. It was a bankrupt nation in lots of ways. Now, all of that was brought on by the devil. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. This was not brought on by the devil. We know why it was brought on. We know why. And we know who. The who is, of course, mentioned in verse 1. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. And the why? Verse 10. But you have not obeyed my voice. It's a scene, ladies and gentlemen, that is repeated over and over and over again. But not simply in the book of Judges. It is a scene that is repeated over and over again in our lives. A life reduced to shambles. Why? Because the devil is so crafty. Oh, he's a formidable foe, ladies and gentlemen, indeed. But here is a nation reduced to shambles, not because of the devil, but because the nation chose not to obey the voice of God. They live a prodigal-like existence because they have made prodigal-like choices. That is true of this story. (coughs) And unfortunately, it could be said of so many of our lives, at least if not now, surely in, in our history, beneath cruel, brutal oppression, Israel lies crushed and mangled. She was broken and beaten and helpless. And in in that state, she once again cries out to the God of Israel for help. Now, let me tell you about another refrain. Another refrain that takes place in the book of Judges. A broken, mangled, bruised people being brought to that state by their own willful choices cries out to God. And here's the refrain. 
He answers them. He once again comes to his people in grace. <coughs> and he does that this time by sending a prophet. Now, guys, you know what a prophet is, don't you? Um, <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm almost well, but not quite. This has been going on since December the 5th. I covet your prayers. Um, you know what a prophet is, don't you? If I say prophet and you think of someone who predicts the future, then let's change the way you think. Because the prophet was, in, in a, on occasion, the prophet did indeed predict the future. Very rarely, by the way. Not very often. But they do. You find it in the book of Ezekiel. You find it in the book of Daniel. Uh, you find it even from Moses. But in the main, a prophet <coughs> was not one who <coughs> predicted the future. A prophet was one who represented the mind of God. He was a spokesman. He came and delivered the word of God to people. And before God ever sends the deliverer in the form of Gideon, he sends a prophet. Almost like you find in the New Testament where before Jesus arrives, he sends John the Baptist. The role is one <coughs> where <coughs> stony hearts are plowed up. There's a rebuke. And um, one that leads to <coughs> a desire <coughs> for God's deliverance. And I want you to notice what the prophet says in verses 7 and following. 7 through 10, really, 7 through 9. And it's interesting. You'll see in verse 8, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I love that. I love that formula. Thus saith the Lord. That's the voice of a prophet, ladies and gentlemen. Someone who stands before the people of God and says, Thus saith God. Not Jimmy. Not the denomination. Not uh, the um, creedal statement. <coughs> but God says, and it is interesting to me how often in the Old Testament the deliverance from Egypt is alluded to. And that's what, that's what the prophet says here. Notice, uh, I'm still in verse 8, I think. Um, yes, notice what he says. I brought you from Egypt. And I brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the Egyptians. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And of course, who is the operative agent? Who is the antecedent of the pronoun I? It's not the prophet. It's God. He says, I want you to understand this. I want you to remember something. Don't you remember that I have done this for you? That I brought you out from under the hand of cruel oppressors? I delivered you from the house of bondage? 
I led you. I drove them out. I gave you their land. <coughs> you know, gang, um, you find that same kind of theme in the New Testament, in the New Testament epistles. And it, if you read them with some kind of discerning eye, you, you can't help but notice that the apostles take the same approach when they write words of admonishment to people in the New Testament. The apostles repeatedly reminded the Christians that God had saved them so that they might live obediently and serve their deliverer faithfully. As God's people, as God's children, they were called upon to walk worthy of their high and heavenly calling, Ephesians 4.1. And they were asked to live like people who were seated with Christ in glory, Colossians 3.1. You see, gang, the, the motive for Christian living, the motive for Christian obedience is not that we might gain something that we don't now have. The motive is that we might live up, that we might live up to what we already have in Christ. <coughs> Israel. Israel must understand that the reason that she finds herself in the situation in which she finds herself is because she has failed. She has failed to live honorably and obediently to the God who had so delivered her. Guys, you haven't missed that. I haven't wasted my time and yours, have I? Israel has to understand, and so do we, that the reason that there are shambles in our experience <coughs> is not because God hadn't made a wonderful provision. It's because we've chosen to live casually. We've chosen to play fast and loose with the commands of God. We've chosen to let things creep into our lives that we know are not approved in heaven. Why is it, ladies and gentlemen, that the Christian church has to set aside their men's program to discuss internet porn. Is there any way that a Christian could justify? No, there's not. And ladies and gentlemen, our lives Come unglued because we make choices that are a very clear affront to the holiness of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please don't miss this. Please don't miss the kindness of God. <clears throat> One of the kindest things that God does for these people and for us 
is to bring us under the criticism of his word. He seems a prophet. He entrusts to us a book. One of the kindest things that he has done for us, ladies and gentlemen, is that he sweeps us underneath the criticism of his word to expose all those reasons for our helplessness and misery. He does this. He does this, ladies and gentlemen, and I hope you don't think this is self-serving, but he does this through preaching. He does it through counseling and teaching as we are brought to sit underneath the thus saith the Lord. And one other thing I don't want you to miss, ladies and gentlemen, because tucked into this message from God to Israel is a very intriguing omission. It's as if this sermon brought by this prophet is incomplete. The punchline, the punchline seems to be missing in it. After he says what he says in 10b, that is, but you have not obeyed my voice. It's almost that we anticipate or expect that the next thing that we ought to hear is some kind of predictable, therefore. But it doesn't come. The judgment that ought to be announced, it doesn't come when he ought to destroy. He chooses instead to deliver. Instead of judgment, he chooses grace. When he has every right to destroy, he chooses grace. When he ought to kick us out of the kingdom, he chooses instead to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness. Let me close with what I hope will be three applications and and I'm finished. First of all, dang, I've said this before, I think. I know I meant to, but I think I left it out one Sunday. But if I didn't, let me say it now. It's a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You ought to write this one down. God will never allow his people to sin successfully. He will never allow us. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we do get away with it, don't we? For a while. But God will never allow us. God is not some kind of permissive parent who allows his children to do as they please. And the chastening that he brings is the evidence of his hatred for sin and his love for his people. The fact that there are shambles, the fact that there is misery, ladies and gentlemen, is a kindness. It means that God did not throw us out. 
It means that God did not give us up. It means that God is continuing to work with us. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it is impossible for us to spurn the laws of God and not suffer some kind of appalling consequence. Don't be fooled, my dear brother and sister. God will not allow us. He will not allow us to sin successfully. And every one of us ought to stand up and do a jig right about now. Oh, I'm so grateful, oh God, that you will not allow me to get away with my sin. Even in the midst of what we could consider a very harsh and divine chastening, there is within it the mixture of grace. But you do know, do you not, as you find here in the book of Judges, the chastening is supposed to lead our suffering hearts to repentance. And when it does, it has accomplished its purpose. Repentance, ladies and gentlemen, is something that should be true of us daily. Secondly, God speaks to his children even either through the loving voice of his, of his word. He speaks to us through here or he speaks to us through the heavy hand of chastening. If we ignore the first, we will endure the second. You know, guys, that's not rocket science. I mean, think about it. How could anybody justify, and I, I'm not trying to pick on internet porn, although I, are you appalled? Aren't you appalled? That our children, our junior high, and our senior high children have been exposed to these sites? I was told that by our youth leaders. I was told that this morning. Do you, do, you, do you think there's any way that such a thing could be justified by an examination of this book? I had a young woman tell me that who was living with her boyfriend. And she said, um, a lot of Christian couples are sleeping together before they're married. I don't know about you, but I... I, I have a strange suspicion that that could in no way be justified by this book. We either listen to the loving voice of this from God or we endure. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if he chastens us, he chastens those whom he loves. We'd better all be glad that he does because he hasn't given up on us. And then finally, disobedience 
always leads, eventually. And, and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there, there is a, I think you all know, I mean, there is a period in which we get away with it. Ignoring our conscience. Disobedience always, eventually, leads not to laughter and gaiety, but to hardship. For the people of God, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is written to the people of God. If you were here today outside of Jesus Christ, none of this really has reference to you. This is how he deals with us. This is how he deals with his people. And ladies and gentlemen, though it brings sorrow and tears, hardship and ache and pain and suffering and sleepless nights. It is the response of his covenantal loving commitment to his people that we are called upon to live as if we are seated with Christ in glory. Now, by the power and the might of his Holy Spirit, Let's go do that. What do you say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do thank you for this reminder from your word. I pray that it will be um, it will be something that will bring joy to the hearts of your people, even though they may be in the midst of difficult and suffering times now. Might even their suffering bring about joy in being reminded that that too is a token of the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met our Savior, might they see him in all of his beauty as reflected in the eyes and the countenances of his people. Might people leave here today knowing that they have been among a group of Christian folk who are very serious about walking consistently with Jesus Christ. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.